0: Hi, hello. I am Greg Finer.
1: I'm Laura Scott.
0: And you're listening to The Occidental's new podcast, Straight from the Tiger's Mouth.
1: This week, staff writer Stella Ramos is here to talk to us about the return of the Oxy Sexual Assault Coalition on campus and what this means for students and underground fraternities.
0: Then... Is gentrification inevitable? If so, does that mean we shouldn't care? Kareem Sharif and Milo Goodell sit down and discuss the complexities of gentrification in Eagle Rock and Highland Park. Stay with us. Stella Ramos in the studio talking to us about OSAC. Thanks for being here.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So fill us in on some of the background information of this story.
2: So, the Occidental Sexual Assault Coalition, they've been dormant for about four years now, since 2013, but they have existed on campus before, and they existed on campus when a lot of kind of the controversy around the sexual assault epidemic on campus was going on, when Oxy was featured on the hunting ground, that kind of time frame. They left campus for about four years and then they reestablished themselves in an email that was sent to the entire Occidental community. So that was in October of last semester. And so my story was just kind of looking into why they re-established themselves and what they're going to do in the future and how that's going to impact Occidental now.
1: How exactly does that differ from what OSAC was doing when they were an organization
2: before? I think there's definitely overlap, but they do have more specified goals to now um, in that they're emerging right now and they have to do with like things that are going on on campus right now. Structurally, they have eight members and these are like core members that are each like working on the goals. And each member is kind of working on like a specific goal, but no one's working alone. So usually like two people are working on one goal, Okay. but they like really stress that anyone can get involved with the organization. So you don't have to be one of those eight core members to kind of like take action or be a part of it. And there's no hierarchy among the organization. So even though certain people kind of like brought it back to campus or co-founded it um, this time around, there's no like e-board. There's no like specific hierarchy with like a president or a vice president. Um, it really stress that they're all level. Um, even like Professor Heldman, who's involved with it, she also holds a position that's like level to all of the students that are on board
0: one of the main areas that OSAC's focusing on is um, new student orientation.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, So for orientation, they just think there's a lot of room for growth on what people can learn about sexual assault and the way that they frame it. And so I know one thing that Gabriella Anson, who's a senior on OSAC, spoke to me about is the fact that there's kind of this like turnover rate, like you graduate in four years, and there's this history at Occidental of sexual assault that a lot of first years come in not aware of. And so making that kind of history more accessible for students, and it's not like a happy or fun thing to learn about when you come to Oxy right away, but it is important for students to know about. I know like speaking as a first year, I came in with no knowledge of what had previously gone down on Oxy's campus. And then I know they also are taking specific fault with the Think About It program and just the ways that that can be used more effectively. Yeah, I know when I came in during orientation, we actually had Jackson Katz
1: Greg and I were on the same orientation, and -hmm. and he came in and spoke, which apparently the previous OSAC had been advocating for for years. We all saw him speak, and he was fantastic, but Mm -hmm. we had no idea how much work had gone on behind the scenes for years to try to bring him to campus, and we didn't know what organization had been advocating for it. Like Mm -hmm. We just had literally no
0: memory uh, of it. Yeah, I mean, just for perspective, the first mention of trying to get him to come to campus was in like 2007, 2008, yeah, something wow. like that. Isn't
2: that crazy? Yeah, that's a long
1: time. Thinking about orientation and how this new OSAC is going to be a resource and try to ch- mm-hmm. make change, how are they different from what um, Title Nine and Project SAFE are already doing? Um, are these organizations collaborating? I guess Title IX isn't really an organization, yeah. but um, like, what resources are they providing that these other two
2: spaces aren't going to provide? Mm-hmm there's kind of a degree of activism with OSAC that's not there with Project Safe um, and that this is like a group of students advocating and taking action on an issue and kind of, the stories that are shared, I think, go towards that like productive activism and can impact the goals that they're like taking on campus and the action they're taking.
0: And you mentioned in the article uh, that OSEC is calling for a ban on underground organizations yeah. like OMA, formerly ATO. Mm-hmm. What would that look like? And like, what, what like what would students be able to expect from that?
2: From what I've heard, they mostly just want underground fraternities to not be recognized anymore. So, I know that they've cited times where, like, the president of the college has, like, just, like, referenced OMA, or it's just openly, like, referenced as an organization. And so um, just kind of making it more transparent to the community of how they exist and operate, because for those of you who don't know what OMA is, um, it used to be... It's now attributed to the football house. It used to be an actual um, fraternity, but it got shut down. And then they kind of have, have remained as this, like, underground entity that's not technically a, like fraternity on campus but is still known widely by the Oxy community and still has house letters and like owns property right near Occidental and is kind of like this fixture of the social community here. Like again speaking from someone who's only been here for like almost a year like I did not know that OMA technically wasn't a fraternity. I didn't really know a lot about kind of like how the sports houses operated or anything of that nature and so just kind of providing that transparency of like how they operate and the fact that they're not a recognized like fraternity
1: yeah I guess on some level like all of the sports houses Mm -hmm. operate as almost fraternities because obviously football with the OMA letters is like so prominent and Mm -hmm. they host parties and they have this house but other sports teams have houses and is a band asking them to like come out of the woodwork and seek formal acknowledgement or is it trying to close these
2: organizations off completely? I think the attempt is to just allow the administration to finally recognize that they exist and that they might like threaten the occidental community in specific ways that OSEC sees. Um, And so, having kind of the administration taking action on it, and I don't know if that would seek them to, um, you know, want to be a recognized fraternity. And if it does, I know OSAC is also working with fraternities and sororities in general on just reforming their practices and getting more like clarity around um, like repercussions and um, consequences for sexual assault. And so, if they did seek that, then it would be coming into this new kind of like reformed, um, where there's actually specific repercussions. Because I think. The biggest issue right now is that there's no like process with OMA um, within like the organization for when those things happen, and opposed to other fraternities where there's like specific processes and practices that, that have to take place if someone has like a Title IX claim filed against them or um, has rumors of sexual assault. Like, there's a process for that because there's a hierarchy and there's an organization that's like instilled, but with OMA, and an organization there's not. that's also like being held accountable yeah. by Greek Council. Yeah.
0: I was wondering just very briefly if you could touch on the anti-male bias t-shirts that Ooh, OSAC, because yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that started out kind of at this new yeah. chapter of OSAC, right?
2: Yeah, that was definitely a specific campaign that was a reference to the Title IX um, case that was filed, which if you haven't read about it, there's a great article about it on Occidental.com. so read that. But yeah, that was just kind of targeting the football team, I think, and they've had some other social media kind of posts that also target that Title IX case or reference it. It definitely, I think, drew attention to OSAC and drew attention to the parts of OMA that they take problem with.
1: So I know this story briefly touched on white feminism. Can you expand on whether that was a
2: worry when OSAC was first introduced on campus? Reintroduced, sorry. Reintroduced, yeah. Rachel Hayes, who's a first-year, spoke to me about this, and they just kind of expressed that they were a little bit worried about being tokenized when they first came on because... They said that they didn't have a, like a, a huge understanding of the past of OSAC also um, coming in as a first year, but that as they kind of did research into the organization, they noticed that it was a lot, there's kind of a lack of representation there, um, and that it was a lot of what they claimed to be white feminism. They said that after they communicated that with the current members of OSAC and the people who were recruiting them, um, they felt a lot more comfortable with it and that now this current OSAC has a lot more representation and has like diversity as a main goal for them. Um, Rachel also talked to me a lot about just the fact that people of color are usually more marginalized, but usually also like more impacted by sexual violence, and so having a voice for them is super important. And so I think that's also something that's changing with OSAC is those priorities there and having equal representation or at least attempting that this time around which I don't think happened as much in the previous years. So
1: I know this isn't the end of the story. You're working Mm -hmm. on another article, yeah?
2: Yeah, so I'm working on just kind of investigating a lot of claims and different things that OSAC is working towards and gaining commentary from like all sides of the situation. So there will be more articles coming out about (laughs) OSAC, so definitely read them when they do come out. Well, thank you so much for coming in. It was great
1: to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. (laughs) Kareem Sharif and Milo Goodell wrote opposing articles about gentrification in our opinion section, and today we have them both here in the studio to talk about where they intersect, places that they diverge. Uh, Welcome to the studio. All right, so I thought we could start with a little game, if that's cool with everyone. (laughs) Cream first, you say a sentence, just like any statement, and then Milo, you'll answer with a question.
3: Gentrification has changed the neighborhood around Occidental College. Has that change been bad?
1: Ooh, okay, now we'll switch it.
3: Gentrification is inevitable. Does that mean we shouldn't look at it in every way we can?
1: So maybe you can just summarize your argument in like one to two sentences, what you wrote about.
4: So I basically argue that gentrification is a market force that's basically impossible to stop. And the important thing is for the government especially to modulate gentrification so it's a good thing. And um, because progress is inevitable and standing in the way of progress will never work. So to kind of
3: contrast that, my argument is that while we can look at it from sort of economic perspectives, I think there's also a social aspect that is very important and often gets overlooked. And the question then becomes, OK, well, who's getting left behind?
1: Can one of you summarize what's going on on York and Colorado Boulevard? How has this neighborhood changed since, say, the 80s?
3: So I think gentrification is never a rapid progress where, you know, in, in the matter of one year you see an entirely new neighborhood. But it's exactly that. It's things since the
4: 80s. You're seeing change now
3: over almost 40 years.
4: And this isn't um, only an Oxy or even Eagle Rock specific thing. Um, Gentrification has been affecting L.A., especially um, northeastern L.A. since the 1990s. You know, it sort of started in Venice Beach, and now we've seen how Silver Lake and Los Feliz and all these other neighborhoods have really changed. And we can argue later about whether or not that change is good or bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it certainly has been a systematic change over the past 30 years. Um, I think there's no arguing that uh, a population of 2,000 uh, co- college-age students inserted into any neighborhood would exert change. And I think, based on our student body, it is exerting a, a gentrifying influence. But I think ATSI is a good example of gentrification for good. You know, um, we see community members walking their dogs across our campuses. Our football stadiums are used for local high school events. Um, we have local programs here for Kids. So I think occidental, you know, is, is gentrifying, but it perhaps shows a model of how gentrification isn't always bad. Yeah. Kareem, do
1: you have any thoughts
4: on this? Yeah.
3: So I think gentrification and oxy, like you actually said, go hand in hand in the sense that uh, you can see it over time. There's actually been studies done and a sort of bizarre philosophical theory term coined for it, which is studentification, which is basically gentrification done by populations of students by mainly liberal arts colleges so we obviously play a significant role in which businesses get to survive on on say york boulevard Um,
1: i guess my question is occidental has been around since what like the 1800s um so what's changed now in the past 30 or 40 years um, that's making these liberal arts colleges a gentrifying force that that wasn't there before
3: You know, I think, to tell you the truth, I think that they've always been a gentrifying force in one way or another. Even when Occidental was founded, it certainly, although the photos sort of suggest there was not much around it, it definitely was a force in changing that environment and also producing the neighborhood around it. So while we may be a sort of good force in the neighborhood by providing a space for community members to also feel comfortable, we have to ask ourselves if the changing property
4: values are actually benefiting those people or not. Um, quickly, I think also the Occidental student body has also changed a lot in a way that reflects the change of Los Angeles. And I think the Occidental student body today has a different demand um, from its neighborhood than an Occidental of the 1950s would. And I do think that um, the sort of r- r- role of Occidentals as a gentrifying force has changed over time with this school itself. I do really disagree that Occidental a college is complicit or in any way responsible for gentrification because they bought new houses for their upcoming projects and I also disagree that anybody who goes to Barry Bowl is complicit in gentrification. I think it's a vast oversimplification to say um, that simply by patronizing these establishments you're endorsing them.
3: When you look at gentrification, holistically speaking, no matter how you approach it, we are complicit in its process. And so we have to be conscious of how and where and why. So things like purchasing, you're patronizing a place like Berry Bowl. There is an entire system at work that is beyond our wallet that determines whether or not we are involved in gentrification. You could argue we're involved in gentrification just by being there.
1: So Oxy's been talking a lot about the new Oxy Arts building. We bought up OxyMart, um, which was sort of a local establishment that's been there for years, um, and we're turning it into an arts and hopefully community-based space. Um, What are your thoughts on, on this and maybe how the neighborhood is responding to it?
3: You know, I think this is a perfect example of a transitional time where there is the chance to do good. We have a chance to actually get involved with the community, and my hope is that Occidental, as an institution, will recognize its role not only in the surrounding community, but a responsibility to it.
4: I think Occidental has certainly has a responsibility to our community but I also think it has a responsibility to our students and our faculty and um from all that I've heard about the discussion around this I think it's pretty clear that Occidental has legitimate reason for wanting this and we can argue about the involvement in the community about the whole purchase itself um but I don't think that the purchasing of this bu- these buildings was in any way uh wrong by the school or uh, morally or complicitly involved in gentrification?
1: If there was an ideal gentrification related scenario, if there was one. <laughs>
4: The best-case gentrification scenario for me is the slow, gradual melding of economic classes. I think the worst gentrification happens when there's a serious economic divide between the people in a neighborhood. Um, so I think government incentives to make sure that local businesses are incentivized to hire people from the community that they're in, making sure that there's affordable public housing and things like all that, are all good ways of making sure that gentrification can be a force for good. Yeah, so I
3: think one of the interesting parts about how gentrification ends up getting handled is the points at which the government intervenes. So one example I'm thinking of is the policing of neighborhoods in downtown Los Angeles or even MacArthur Park. I had a very interesting talk with a community member in MacArthur Park who's been running a sort of freeform church out of the park for about a decade now. And he was very pro gentrification because he was saying, you know, it's, it's cleaned up MacArthur Park. It's now safe for us to be here. But at the same time, there were LAPD vans circling constantly so the question then becomes okay well who are they surveying for and how are they interacting with the community that they're supposedly representing so my frustration with the government intervention is that it feels like it only happens when there is money to be made or money to be protected
1: what can people do if they're unhappy with the direction of a changing neighborhood where do we go
3: you know that's that's not, of course, if, if we boycott variable and they go out of business, gentrification isn't going to be solved. I think boycotting variable is a good way to show who you align with within the community if there are forces pushing back because one of the most important things that we can do is ask ourselves not what we think of gentrification but what the community members who are being affected do and if they're saying hey this is a problem i'm losing you know x y and z whether it's businesses or a sense of community or community hubs that they previously had if they're saying hey you know these things are changing and it's not in a way that's beneficial to me, that's who we should be listening to.
4: Uh, I think the most important part with dealing with gentrification is realizing that n- neither you or I or Aksanel as a school is going to be able to solve it. I think where Kareem and my arguments diverge is this idea of moral responsibility and the sort of complicity in gentrification by patronizing these establishments. The most important way of dealing with gentrification is getting involved in county, city, and state government. I think that's where this change will really happen, and um, I think that the problem is gentrification is sometimes used as a, a way of sort of um, Uh, a way of shaming or guilting people um, based on their choices and I think that's not how we're going to fix the problem and I think that also dilutes the discussion um, that we're having.
3: Perhaps the important counterpart to that is being involved on that micro level because that's a way where we can find out how those changes are directly affecting the people that we're working for.
1: Thank you both for your time. Thank you for being here. Super appreciate it.
4: Thank you for hosting us.
0: Straight from the Tiger's Mouth is produced in the Critical Making Studio in collaboration with Raw Records. Thanks to Barbara Thomas, the Occidental Faculty Advisor and the Senior Editorial Team. Sound editing by Emily Jo Worry and Laura Scott. Original music by Nico Bluffin. Produced by Ronald Chan and Laura Scott.
1: For more of the stories we covered today from The Occidental, go to our website, theoccidentalweekly.com, and find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.
0: We can only cover two stories on this podcast every week because uh, we don't have enough time to cover more than that, but that doesn't mean there aren't plenty of stories we wish we could cover. Uh, Laura, what were some of the stories you liked this week?
1: Elliot Brody, who we had on the last episode, did this great investigative piece about Occidental buying properties um, for veteran housing for student veterans, but also displacing original residents.
0: And I read a great culture article by Perry Wallant about uh, TV writer and producer Joan Rader, who gave a talk in Choi Auditorium last week about her experiences not only writing and producing, but raising a transgender son and uh, furthering trans representation in the media.
1: So for those stories, which we loved, and for all of the stories we covered on this podcast, you can head to...
0: TheOccidentalWeekly.com. That's right. We still haven't changed the name. And it's available in print, both on campus and in coffee shops around the area.
1: This is the Occidental Podcast.